You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is no exception. This is January, and January is a month I try as best as I can to devote the topic of abortion, since Roe v. Wade is known for this month. And I have heard statistics that it looks like Planned Parenthood's uh, numbers of abortions done has gone up. But folks, let's remember, it's only 3% of what they do, really, after all. Yeah. Well, today we have on a Catholic philosopher to talk about the topic of abortion. He's done quite a bit of work on it, I understand. <clears throat> His name is Trent Horn. He's a convert to Catholic faith, and he earned a master's in the fields of theology, philosophy, and bioethics. He serves as a staff apologist for Catholic Answers, where he specializes in teaching Catholics to graciously and persuasively engage those who disagree with him. Trent models for that approach each week on the radio program Catholic Answers Live and his own podcast for Counselor Trent. He has also been invited to debate at UC Berkeley, UC Santa Barbara, and Stanford University. Trent is an adjunct professor of apologetics at Holy Apostles College, has written for the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, and the author of nine books, including Answering Atheism, The Case for Catholicism, and Why We're Catholic, Our Reasons for Faith, Hope, and Love. So, Trent, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you for having me, Nick. I really appreciate being here. Now, if my audience doesn't know much about you, tell us about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. So, I uh, was originally, I was a non-religious person raised in kind of a non-religious mm-hmm. household. My parents are nominally religious. Uh, but then in high school, I was befriended by some uh, Catholic and Christian teens, and then I, I became Christian, and then maybe a year after that, I became Catholic. Mm-hmm. And I'd done youth ministry after that, went on to do graduate school, and doing pro-life work, actually. I, I, after college, I traveled the country mm-hmm. doing pro-life apologetics on university campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then starting in 2012, I started working at Catholic Answers, being a Catholic apologist, and since then, I've written, I think, like nine books. I've done mm. a series of debates. Mm. Uh, so I branched out to a lot of different topics, but pro-life is still one of the ones I started on, one I, I still routinely speak about and engage in debates with. And I'm ha- I love equipping other people to talk about this topic. And so that's I'm glad to be here to talk about it. Yeah, you do some work with equipping other people. I know it because you and I have debated someone in common Dan Barker, and when I was getting ready to debate him, I got in touch with you, seeing you've been there, and said, hey, can you give me some tips, things you think I should know about, and some were very helpful. I did get in touch with Tyler McNabb shortly after that to talk about religious epistemology, so that was very helpful. Oh, good, yeah. Dan is, uh, ben- Dan is interesting. Mm-hmm. His greatest strength is his greatest weakness, because mm-hmm. uh, he's done maybe hundreds of debates, or mm-hmm. at least over a hundred, it seems like. And many of them are on YouTube, and he takes the same approach in them. Mm-hmm. 
And so that makes him very polished in his delivery, but it also makes him very predictable in his delivery. So someone, if you know what he is going to say, you can be prepared to have a very good mm-hmm. reply to those arguments. I remember when I debated him in, in Minnesota on whether the Christian God exists, I knew he was going to throw out like something like 50 Bible verses in his opening statement. Yeah. And so uh, I was prepared uh, to reply to almost all of them. And then he had nowhere really to go uh, go after that. But yeah, I was very glad to see that you uh, debated him and glad to see that you're doing this and many other Christians want to take up apologetics and uh, and get out there, you know? Yeah, and before we go on, I would like to say, this is being a rare day where I'm actually recording on a Friday for a show due to Trent's schedule. And as today happens, it's actually my mother's birthday, so I wish her a big happy birthday here. And that's no, I'm going to be very discreet. I'm not going to tell everyone you're turning 70 this year, okay? So you can rest assured I'm being a very secretive son that way. <laughs> well, in the, in, in the church I go to, I go to a Byzantine Catholic church. Mm-hmm. When we have birthdays, we sing a song, uh, God grant him or God grant her many years. So mm-hmm. God grant her many years. So that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, why should we really care about the pro-life case? I mean, look, I'm looking around here. I'm in a neighborhood that's full of people. If anything, I get stuck in traffic all the time. So there's people everywhere. So what's the big deal with pro-life then? Well, the big deal is that people matter. Mm -hmm. If people don't matter, uh, nothing matters because Mm -hmm. people are the only things, only individuals that can understand about morality, right and wrong, truth and goodness. Uh, You know, if the world would have, uh, you could almost say that if people didn't exist, the world wouldn't Mm -hmm. exist. You could have a physical world, but you wouldn't have people perceiving it's deeper truth. So people matter. And I believe as Christians, we can know people matter because they're created in the image and likeness of God who ultimately matters because he's goodness itself. And so because people are important, we ought to defend them. Uh, p- human beings have equal an equal right to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have equal uh, dignity with one another. And so we ought to treat human beings equally. And the great problem we have with abortion is that there's a large number of people, human beings prior to birth, who are not being treated that way, who are being uh, killed, and that is an injustice. And also it's causing great uh, emotional, and in some cases, uh, you know, some cases, depending on the case, there's physical, emotional, psychological, and most definitely spiritual harm to a person who engages in this. So as Christians, we are called to to stand up and do something for this, Mm -hmm. to do something against this. The proverb says uh, to drag uh, rescue those who are being dragged to death, and that, that certainly applies here. Yeah. So if you were talking with the average man on the street and said, okay, give me a case for pro-life, and please don't throw a bunch of Bible verses at me. Sure. What would, they, what would you say? Well, what I would say is that uh, all human beings have a right to life. All human beings are equally valuable. Uh, and the unborn are certainly human beings. We can know that from from science, and therefore we ought to treat them as being valuable. And abortion violates their life by dir- directly taking it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I put the argument that way. I usually try to frame it in terms of equality. But a lot of times I ask the other person what they think about abortion, mm-hmm. and I want them to defend and define their worldview and to show that it's it's ultimately inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, let's. Uh Start with, I mean, you talk about how science shows that, you know, life begins at conception, but, geez, am, am I really supposed to believe that this tiny little cell here really counts as a human person? I mean, I see human persons all around me everywhere. 
-hmm. That tiny little cell doesn't look the same thing. Yeah, and what I would say here is that a person who makes this objection, uh, they are not making a scientific objection. They're making a philosophical objection. Mm -hmm. uh, because science can clearly tell us what something is. It can't tell us how we ought to treat that thing. If there is a, a deceased organism, a de dead body on the side of the road, Mm -hmm. Science can tell us what species that that body, that organism used to be. Mm -hmm. And it can also, and if it's a human, it can tell us which human being it is based on DNA. Uh, but it can't tell us if that person should be dead. Did they die from an accident? Uh, was Were they killed? Was it murder? Was it self-defense? Uh, those, are, those are value judgments. It's mm -hmm. philosophy. So clearly, when we talk about what a human being is, uh, there's a scientific definition, and then for some people, a philosophical definition. And the scientific definition is very clear. It's just an individual member of the human species. The terms fetus and embryo refer to stages of development mm -hmm. in the life of a human being. And so that's a scientific judgment that's clear. If you want to say, ah, yes, but a person or a human, fully human person has to be a certain size, well, then you're making a philosophical judgment. And I'm going to ask well, why do you have to be a certain size to be a person? Why should I believe that? And then sh maybe go down that trail with them to show that size is ultimately uh, irrelevant to our value. Mm -hmm. now, I, I find it so amazing that when, the, when it struck me one day, thinking about this, that we live in a culture that says science is everything. Science is supreme. Science is a way of knowing, except or when it comes to the big three issues of our day, abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism, and then everyone becomes a philosopher suddenly. Yes, that's right. When you look at other, even with, with transgender ideology, when science clearly seems, clearly debunks the idea that male or female are just purely these subjective criteria, we base much of the science of medicine and biology on the existence of a binary between men and women that can be biologically determined. Mm -hmm. The same with, with pro-life, with abortion, that it's very clear the unborn are members of our species, yet somehow people try to uh, go against that, to try to show that uh, the unborn, well, maybe if they are a member of our species, they don't matter, and then they fall right into, you're right, they make these philosophical arguments while trying to say that they're scientific when they, they're, they're not. They're just making a... They're just making a philosophical case, and we need to we need to show people that that is exactly what they're doing. What goes through your mind when you hear news? I think Michelle Williams was her name, this yes. actress who gets up recently and, and accepts an award and says she had to have an abortion to get there, and the audience applauds at that point. I mean, when you sit down and let's suppose you're watching as that happens, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking the applause is also representative of a group mm -hmm. of Hollywood professionals mm -hmm. who are more likely to hold uh, moral views and religious views that aren't in line with most people. Mm -hmm. So it's a skewed sample. So that doesn't concern me. Uh, what's interesting, though, is if you listen to that speech Michelle Williams gave about abortion, she can never bring herself to say the word abortion. Most people can't. You look at political debates where uh, in the Democratic primaries, all the candidates there support legal abortion, but they don't want to say abortion. They say choice or reproductive health or reproductive rights. Because people know deep down the word abortion conjures up images 
a very grisly things of unborn human beings being dismembered in the womb, whereas choice is an abstract thing where you think of people walking into an abortion facility or something like that. So our job as pro-life advocates is to get people in the conversation to think not of the abstract, but to think of the particulars, and in this case, the particular of what abortion actually is. You know, I, I think something else interesting on those lines about no one will say it is that you can watch many things on television. I mean, you can see nudity on television very easily. You can see all these sex scenes in movies and TV shows. But it seems that, you know, if someone gets pregnant, no one brings up, hey, maybe you should get an abortion. And you never really seem to see an abortion done on television. Oh, yeah, no. And I mean, if you think about it, you can um, uh, you can see on television all kinds of, some people say, well, because it's bloody or it's gross. But you can see on television specials, they've shown brain surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, um, uh, they, they've shown heart surgery on television. Why don't we see abortion on television? So, um, yeah, it's... Um, it's a double standard because if pe- when people see it, they either become incredibly hardened or mm-hmm. in many other cases they break and they mm-hmm. realize it's not something that they, they ought to support. Yeah, I, I know my wife tried to watch for a bit The Silent Scream. Oh, yes, and yeah. And she couldn't get through it. And like, I'm totally pro-life, but I tell you, I would never watch The Silent Scream at all. Not because I don't care because I'm one of those people who's incredibly squeamish. And I think right. I'd make myself sick. By doing it. But I, I think it's great for us out there, though, because it really does help some people see what's going on. I mean, I know there are some people who've said they've had their minds changed by images held on signs outside of abortion clinics. And there are some people I, I understand. I think I've heard before that Planned Parenthood doesn't really let you see the ultrasound when it's being mm-hmm. done. Because when a lot of people see the ultrasound, they just know immediately, boom, this is a human life. Right. They, uh, they see, hey, this is, this is not just a clump of cells. This is not just, uh, oh, you know, this is, uh, what's the word I'm, uh, I'm looking for here? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not just an amorphous blob. Mm-hmm. It's quite clearly, it is, this, it's, a, it's, a human, it's a human life that we, mm-hmm. ought to, um, that we ought to care about that we ought to um, show respect to and deference to. And so that, that is something that is, has been very helpful in, keep, in getting a lot of people to see, hey, wait a minute, uh, I need to really reconsider uh, my worldview on this, uh, on this issue. Now, not always. I, know, I mean, there are people yeah. who see ultrasounds, of course, and don't make the connection here. They just they think, oh, because the unborn can't think or feel and therefore, they um, they don't matter. But that is um, not the way. That's not the way we ought to we ought to approach approach the issue. We should value people not because mm-hmm. of what they can do, but be, mm-hmm. because simply because of what they are. Something that really strikes me as odd about this is the way women seem to approach these topics. They so many women seem to do things counterproductive to their cause. Like they say. We do. We don't want to oppose the patriarchy. We don't want to be sexualized. We don't want to be treated as objects. And then they go out and have topless marches, which will really help with that one, or start championing for abortion. I mean, you can even think about Alyssa Milano's sex strike idea of 
don't have sex with anyone who's not in favor of abortion. And both of those are practices that will lead guys to use women more often. I mean, I think of uh, an article made by a guy named Ben Sherman where he encouraged men to go out and vote against the bill in Texas that would limit abortions. And one of the reasons he gave is, guys, your sex life is at stake. I I think it's, uh, I I just think the, uh, the sex strike thing is, uh, is, is patently, uh, silly. I mean, it goes back to Liza Strada and Aristophanes, like Mm. uh, the the story from the the ancient Mm. Greek poet, uh, Aristophanes, the Liza Strada. Um, but, but here it's interesting because the way that they, they see it as like, okay, well this connects, it's more, it's not even just a human rights issue. It shows kind of the bias that if abortion had nothing to do with sex, mm-hmm. I think people would be able to think more clearly yep. about it. But, but people are, um, mm-hmm. uh, what do you call it? Um, inconsistent. They're, they're, they're inconsistent and they have a bias. Yep. Uh, so that that's, um, and so that's unfortunate where they don't look at the issue clearly because they want abortion as a backup for a life, a particular way they might choose to live life, either for themselves or for, for other people. Well, we can say that on a positive end, but at least people like Alyssa Milano and others, they at least found out the value of abstinence by all of us. Something that we've been saying for a long time, but you know, you actually can practice abstinence. <laughs> right. One would think that. They treat people and think like, oh, you know, they... Um, you know that, yeah. They they just they think that people like the sexual urge, like we're animals, like we can't mm-hmm. possibly control ourselves. And yet at the same time, the, these same people in Hollywood who say, "Oh, you need a sex strike uh, for people who are who are pro life," which oh, suddenly they realize, yeah, sex makes babies. Uh, they it's the idea that oh, you can't expect people to to abstain from sex when they are not able to bear the consequences of that. Uh, but they expect people like they have the hashtag Me Too movement. They expect men to abstain. Mm-hmm. From uh, from engaging in things like sexual harassment and stuff, to not simply follow their base urges, they mm-hmm. should not do a base mm-hmm. urge that could bring harm to another person. So mm-hmm. that's they see it in other contexts, but but not in not in this one. Yeah, I remember when when I was engaged to be married, my dad would tell his coworkers that I was getting married. And somehow, one of the topics that came up was that I was still a virgin, and I said, "Oh." Your son's not being honest with you about that. He's he's lying. He's making it up. Of course he is. He's not a virgin. Well, they're all wrong. I was. And it, it's entirely possible. And when I got married, I was two months away from turning 30. So, yes, it's entirely possible. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that it's um, mm. it's just sad to see the, the state mm. of affairs that we're in. But as, as Christians, even as those of us who are just pro-life, we are capable to uh we're capable of of expressing our views and sharing them and making them winsome to people to see that the sacrifices that are entailed in the christian life are worthwhile because they're the the faith is true it's good it's beautiful and we ought to we ought to share that uh with other people and especially when it comes to the when it comes to the pro-life issue but you said the state of affairs let's talk about that because we talked about a lot of the negative things we see going on but we've got we've had Trump in the White House for a few years now, and one of the things he did come out saying before him was that he was now pro life, and that he was going to appoint judges that would be consistent with that position. And now we've got Gorsuch and we've got Kavanaugh. H- have you been pleased with 
the way that pro-life has been handled in politics since the new presidency started? Uh, well, I think that there is definitely a greater receptivity for the pro-life movement in this current administration. I mean, compared to any other administration mm -hmm. that we possibly would have had, there are things that would definitely um, go against pro-life, and not just at decisions at the executive level to uh, stop different kinds of, of abortion funding overseas or even domestically. But things like the appointment of particular judges is helpful. Uh, we don't think of judges at the federal level. We think everything is just for Roe versus Wade, mm -hmm. and that's it. But federal judges do a lot to talk about enforcing pro-life laws. Uh, even here in California, I don't know if they were appointed by this administration or not, but thankfully, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court here in California overturned a law that would have required uh, pro-life pregnancy resource centers to essentially advertise for nearby abortion clinics, saying that women have a right to know where they can get an abortion and make pregnancy centers be complicit in this, mm -hmm. which would violate their conscience. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to be, be uh, excited about. I think that seeing that there are states working to ban abortion, the bans will probably make their way to the Supreme Court, and we should just pray that the court is open towards modifying law to allow states to have more freedom and flexibility to be able to uh, protect human life, I think is important. So I think we should keep praying for that. But seeing the ba balance of the Supreme Court maybe shifting more and more to a side that's open to life, I think that's uh, I think that's incredibly helpful. I'd remind everyone at this point, we've got Trent Horn on with us. We're talking about pro-life apologetics. He's only here for an hour today. But if you're here next week, we're going to have Josh Bram on. Or Bram, however you pronounce it. From, uh, I think it's the Equal He's Rights great. Institute. He's going to be our guest. We're going to be talking about this. And we've got, already got an endorsement from Trent. Right? He's great. So tune in next week for that, for that and see what happens there. And... You know, I'm in one of those states, actually. I'm in Georgia, and we had that heartbeat bill passed, signed by Brian Kemp, and we heard about all the outrage going on over it. I'm thrilled about it, and I very well wouldn't be surprised if something happened with, say, eventually since Ginsburg's health isn't doing too well, something happened with her. There's going to be mass hysteria if we get another pro-life judge on the Supreme Court, and if we get another one after that, I mean, we could... I've effectively overturned so much of what's happened in this country, I think. I hope so, too. I think that would just be uh, wonderful. But at the same time, we have to remember mm. that even if uh, we overturn, uh, even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, that is not the end. Yeah. It is actually the beginning because mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make abortion illegal in all 50 states. Abortion never abortion never 
did that anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Roe versus Wade didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, what ended up happening, Roe just prevented states from passing laws to restrict abortion. It allows states, and some states have done this, they have passed laws to make abortion a right in that state. So even if Roe is overturned, like New York has done this, and then California has done this, even if Roe is overturned, the state has passed a law saying abortion is legal Mm -hmm. and should be provided. So uh, if it were overturned, it would still be a long, long battle, just the same as it was a long battle to end slavery and protect the civil rights uh, Mm -hmm. of African Americans. Uh, Social justice movements can take a long time, and what they... uh, and what they put forward. So I think mm-hmm. that it's um, it's incredibly important to to be able to do that and just keep our eye uh, on the on the ball, eye on what what God is calling us to do to to promote His His kingdom. And since you mentioned God here, let's bring something else up. Since I said in my half figure example, don't bring up a bunch of Bible verses that because some man on the street might say that kind of thing. Because a lot of people may look at us Christians and say, well, you know. All you're doing is just going by what the Bible says, and that's it. But when you've been giving me all this information, you haven't said a single thing about Jesus says this, God says this, this is a Bible verse. No, I, I make my I make my presentation very secular mm-hmm. for that reason, yeah. because I'm trying to promote a law that I believe would apply to anyone, regardless of what their religious <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> persuasion is. Yeah. And so I think that that is... Um, a very hopeful and helpful thing to do. So, and this isn't definitely this definitely isn't just a position held by Christians. And even within the Christian camp, you got yourself a Catholic apologist. There's me, a Protestant. I've had several Protestant apologists on here who defend the pro-life position. We could find Muslims and Mormons who would do it. You can find the secular pro-life alliance consisting of atheists yes. and agnostics who say, "I love secular pro-life." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of these people. Are I mean, that, does it seem like public opinion could be turning some towards pro-life more? Oh, absolutely, especially among young people. Mm-hmm. I think young people are more likely to be pro-life than ever before. Um, pro-life, uh, one thing, though, is it is hard. Young people are more likely to be pro-life, but we're still kind of stuck at a at a stalemate. For like 40 years, it's just been kind of a stalemate where 25% of people are in favor of most abortions, 25% of people are against most abortion and 50% are in the middle. They're the mushy middle. They're only they're only okay with a few kinds of abortions. Mm-hmm. But if you those people could vote, they would pass laws that would be far more restrictive than what we see now. They might more mirror laws that we see in um, what do you call it? in uh, Western Europe, where abortion is like banned after sometimes after like yeah. 12 or 14 mm-hmm. weeks, uh, which is unheard. Like we are the most permissive country in the world when it comes to abortion, except for like, uh, well, Canada technically doesn't have abortion laws. So like compared to like the only places where we're like on par with in the US are like uh, China and like North mm-hmm. Korea, I think, frankly. Well, let's start getting into some objections that some people might bring up as well for this kind of thing. I mean, I, mean, I don't know it. If you're married or anything like that. I am. Okay. Yes. Now, imagine something you said, well, Trent, what would happen if your wife got raped and she was pregnant? You really want to see her carrying a baby that doesn't belong to you, that reminds her of one of the most traumatic events in her life, to full term and go through all of that? Why would you want to do that to the woman you love? And what I would say here is that first... I might try to expose it. Sometimes people ask this in an honest way and they're seeking, mm-hmm. but other times people put out these hard cases 
as kind of uh, a smokescreen to make it like make you look bad. Whereas I might say, all right, what if I uh, said to you, would you be in favor of abortion being legal in the case of rape, but illegal in all other cases? So mm-hmm. one per- about 1% of abortions are obtained because of a pregnancy due to rape. The other 99% are not. So would you be in favor of, of allowing abortion mm-hmm. in the case of rape, but banning it in all other cases? And most people will say no. And so I'll say, okay, well then why did you even bring that up? If the unborn aren't human beings, it doesn't matter what we do. We could, uh, we could but, throw in incest with that too. Yeah, rape and incest, about 1%, 1.5%. But I would say, look, then why did you bring this up when that's not your issue? Your issue is you want it to be legal in all of these cases, not just this one. So mm-hmm. why is that? But if the unborn are persons, then I would say here, well, look, what's going on here? If someone commits a crime, do we punish the innocent person or the guilty person? There's some countries where if my wife was raped and got pregnant, she would be executed. It's barbaric. Mm -hmm. We would never do that. She's innocent. There's some countries where as a husband, I would ask people to execute my wife and that's terrible. Yeah. But if we agree that it'd be wrong for me to have my wife executed uh, because of a rape, that was not her fault at all. Wouldn't it be wrong for me to encourage the execution of the child who also did not do anything either? Mm -hmm. So I think that's something else we need to bring into the perspective when we're sharing with others. Okay, but what about the emotional aspect of it still? I mean, even still, you'd have to realize it'd be extremely hard, wouldn't it? Of course it would be hard. Mm -hmm. But in any case, when we are um, trying to figure out uh, what we ought to do in life, uh, what is what is the mm-hmm. best path moving forward, the most moral path. Sometimes it's not a position of good or evil that we have to choose from. Sometimes it's, it's hard or evil. And if it's a choice between hard and evil, you have to go with hard, the good hard one than the easy evil solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are cases of people who have been in concentration camps and were told if you rat out the other prisoners, you'll, you'll get to live. And it's wrong to do that. It'd be understandable if they gave in, but mm-hmm. just because something is very difficult does not mean we don't have a moral obligation to do it. And people of grace, especially us as Christians, we have the grace of God to be able to to make those difficult choices and to always choose to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, you can always put a child up for adoption, and there are plenty of people who would like to have such a child. And I, I know there are people who've gone to who just posted on message boards just because someone's talking about having abortion and say, hey, send me your child rather than abort. I'll take your child instead. Right. Um, exactly. You'll see that. I mean, people will say, oh, pro-lifers don't care about life uh, mm-hmm. after birth. And that's not true. There are pro-lifers who will wait. Um, sometimes you know they're waiting years to adopt a child. Mm-hmm. So there's no shortage of people who will take, uh, who want to care for these children. But also the point of the matter is even if there weren't adoptive parents, it still wouldn't be right to kill a child just because they're unwanted. Uh, we, we care for human beings. We don't, we don't kill them for that reason. Yeah. And as I like to say about it, it's not that a child is unwanted. A child is just unwanted by some people. Yeah. It's, uh, unwantedness is not a property of children. It's a property of parents. Mm Mm-hmm. But what about when we have something going on called twinning? I mean, how do, doesn't that kind of go against a pro-life position? And for a second, my audience, could you also describe what twinning is? Since I'm pretty sure I wouldn't get it right exactly either. 
Yeah, so twinning occurs in the development of an embryo uh, when the embryo is growing in development, and this is prior to the development of what's called the primitive streak, which is kind of the, the very primitive backbone or vertebra. As the embryo develops, it can sometimes split into from one embryo to become two embryos that continue to develop, and this is where we get identical twins because they share the same DNA, they just happen to divide in the womb. And so some people will say, well, life a person can't begin to exist at conception if they could twin later on in their existence. Uh, and I have a few thoughts on this. First, even if that were true, uh, by the time twinning is no longer possible after the development of the primitive streak, like two weeks later, uh, abortions all take place after that point anyway. So abortion would, would still be wrong because it happens after that point when twinning can no longer happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, what I would say is that it doesn't seem to follow just because a twin can develop from you, you're not a person. If you took one of my skin cells, you could take the DNA out of it and make a twin who's, who's genetically identical to me. We would not be the same age, but we would be genetically identical. That doesn't mean I'm not a person just because you can make a twin out of one of my cells. As to what's happening in twinning, I'm not entirely sure. There, I mean, there's different hypotheses about what might we, metaphysical conclusion we can draw. It could be the case that prior to twinning, you have two persons sharing one body, and then they separate, similar to how twins in the womb are sometimes conjoined, uh, also called Siamese twins, or the correct term is conjoined twins. And so uh, twins might be conjoined and share the same body, but they're not. They're still two persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fa- famous case of two, of two girls who are conjoined at the neck. They basically share share the same trunk or body, but there's, they're both, they're two separate persons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there could be two persons within one body that becomes two bodies. It could be the case that you have uh, one person, one body, and then another person comes into being at the twinning moment. Uh, it could also be the case that upon twinning, the organism, the person who existed there dies and two new persons come into existence uh, from their uh, genetic material, their bodily material. Mm-hmm. Either way, it doesn't. that does not prove that these are not persons. To round it out, if you take a flatworm and you cut it in two, you have two flatworms. But that doesn't show you didn't have one flatworm before that. So I don't think the twinning objection shows that uh, a person doesn't exist at conception. Yeah, I'm thinking that uh, if we are familiar with science fiction, I, mean, I know on Smallville, Clark Kent had an enemy that could make a clone of himself, and the Flash has had an enemy who could make multiple clones of himself. We can oh, all yes. con- multiple man. That's right. Yeah, we we can all conceive of that kind of thing happening. And that doesn't mean that we look and say, well, those aren't persons. Right, that's right. As I said before, just because you can create a duplicate of yourself doesn't mean you don't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you also, something when we talk about God, some, you know, some people look and say, well, geez, you know, God causes a whole lot of miscarriages and so many, many pregnancies fail. Wouldn't God be the biggest abortionist of all? Right. And what I would say here is if it's the case that God allows people to die in utero, that therefore it's okay to kill people in utero through abortion, then it follows that God allows all human beings to die at some point after birth. Therefore, mm-hmm. it's acceptable to kill any human being after birth. That, that mm-hmm. doesn't follow at all. Uh, God can give human life. He takes it and he is not obligated to give us any set amount of life. And so because we are mortal, God may end our lives or allow our lives to end 
early on in pregnancy, but it doesn't follow that we have the same authority to do that. Also, I'm skeptical that many of these statistics, like 50% of all uh, pregnancies end in miscarriage or 50% of all embryos fail to implant, I'm not necessarily uh, convinced of this. It may be the case that in many of these cases, the embryos that don't implant or the miscarriages that occur are not the result of the death of a human being, but rather what you have is just a bundle of cells that were developing that were not a human organism that have reached the terminal point of their development or the most they can develop and then cease to grow anymore. Uh, There is a phenomenon called teratomas, where after sperm and egg come together, cells grow and develop, but they're disorganized, so it's not an organism. It's just a collection of like hair and tissue and even like teeth. Uh, but uh, teratoma means a monster, actually, in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in Greek. Um, but it's not a person. So I'm skeptical that many of these early uh, embryonic losses are actually the deaths of persons. They may just be the, the death of tissue that, is, is, that cannot develop any further. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the Solas Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the Ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nicky is and all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years, and I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point before we go on, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. <clears throat> Everything we do here is supported by the work of people like you. And if you want to support us, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you get can go and uh, click on that link. You get taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation, then you get in touch with me or my wife, Ari, or Mike or Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We will get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some ebooks that I have written. I'm still working on my response to Richard Dawkins' latest book, Outgrowing God. That was a very fun read to go through. And I hope that will be done by at least the main writing stage by the end of this month. I do have a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Co-written, Defining Inerrancy contextualizing inerrancy, groundless, a look at Dan Barker, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers, Risk Generations Questions, and of course, the Mention of Ours Project. And if you can't do any of these, <clears throat> please go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. Guys, I really love to see this. And Trent, you're a podcaster like I am, and I know <laughs> yes. that you can definitely say it's really great to go and see people leave positive comments about the work that you do and what you put out there. That's true, yeah. It, it, it's such a great encouragement. Now, Trent, do you have an organization or a charity that you'd like to see people donate to? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I have different uh, organizations I, I recommend. Uh, when it comes to, uh, in the Catholic tradition, we divide things up by like the works of mercy, the mm-hmm. corporal works of mercy, mercy, like to feed the hungry, and the spiritual works of mercy to admonish the, the ignorant. Like when it comes to a corporal work of mercy, I like the Against Malaria Foundation. They're mm-hmm. very good about uh, providing malaria nets that save thousands of lives every year. Uh, also, uh, but when it comes to spiritual works of mercy, I would recommend supporting uh, Catholic.com. Uh, my podcast itself is mm-hmm. fully supported by donors, and people can support that at TrenthornPodcast.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's get back to, to the topic of abortion. Okay, how about we, we're talking about things like anencephalic babies, I believe they're called. Babies that are born yes. without a brainstem, and they're going to die within a few hours of birth. I mean, is it wrong to do abortion in that case? Uh, no, I mean, sorry, yes, it would be wrong to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, an anencephalic child is a child who, because of some kind of uh, uh, developmental abnormality, their neural tube fails to close, and so their upper brain, at least, fails to develop. And so they either die in utero or they die shortly after birth. And so the question, you know, it's a very tragic situation for anyone to endure to know that your child has uh, will not live long after birth. Uh, how should we understand this? Well, we should compare it to a born child. Uh, this would be similar to if a born child suffered a catastrophic head injury, such as if a child found a gun and, and uh, shot the top of his head. Uh, he may not live for very long, but we would comfort that child as he was dying, but we would not directly end that child's life. That, mm. would, that would be wrong. Mm. Uh, and so if people can see that, uh, then I think they should see that it would be wrong to end the life of a mm. child in the womb for that reason. And I think that Parents, uh, what I would recommend here would be something called perinatal hospice. That's a hospice ministry that is specifically designed to help parents who know their child has a terminal condition and to uh, to grieve that and to know that their child uh, had at least some life and may, some anencephalic children may even survive long enough to to be baptized. And that's a that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about the case where some like say an ectopic pregnancy? I think it's called where you have the the embryo the fetus caught in the fallopian tubes and it could result in the death of the mother and the child won't live either is abortion acceptable in that case uh yeah what i would um uh, what i would say to that situation is that we should act in a way to preserve the mother's health without directly intending the death of the child and so we could use the moral principle of double effect, that one action, an action can have more than one effect, uh, one intended, one unintended. Mm-hmm. So when I shoot uh, someone in, in self-defense, I have, there's two intentions, there's two effects I know there will be. I'll save my life, and this person will probably die. I don't mm-hmm. intend for them to die. I just intend to save my life. If they die, that's something unintended but foreseen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I couldn't just kill them if they were running away from me because then I just intend for them to die. Same with ectopic pregnancy. I would say that by removing that section of the fallopian tube where the child has implanted, uh, we know that there are two effects. The mother's life will be saved and the child will die. We don't intend the child's death. If we could save the child, we absolutely would. But the primary thing is to remove this damaged part of the mother's body. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a morally illicit thing to do, similar to administering chemotherapy when a woman has a cancerous uterus, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the child may die, but their death is not what uh, stops the cancer. It's an unintended uh, side effect of that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the uh, favorite ones that's usually used nowadays, and it's often said that 
but you know, no pro-lifers ever address this one, which is really a bunch of nonsense, but, okay. Then here's the scene. You're in a building. It's a burning building. It, things are going to go down soon. You can save a couple people or maybe even just one person that's in there. Or you can take a hundred embryos out of there. What are you going to do? Sure, and this is put in the form of a dilemma mm-hmm. to say, well, if you yeah. don't save the embryos, you don't really think that they're people, and therefore they're not persons. Mm-hmm. At most, this would just prove pro-lifers are inconsistent, not that they're wrong, mm-hmm. because this isn't asking us to see if a particular principle of ours is right or wrong. It mm-hmm. just shows in that certain case, we're acting inconsistently. Also, it's not a case, abortion is not analogous, because abortion, you're directly killing someone. Just because you may fail to save someone in one circumstance, it doesn't follow you would directly kill them in another. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, if, I was, if I had a choice between saving my family and saving 30 strangers mm-hmm. uh, in a disaster, I'm going to save my family because yeah. I have uh, obligations to them that I don't have to other people. Mm-hmm. But I would not, in another case, I would not kill 30 strangers to save my family. It would be tragic, and I hope I have the strength to do the right thing here, but I would not kill those individuals in order to save my family. There is a difference between failing to save someone and directly killing them. Mm-hmm. So the case of the um, the IVF on fire, the embryos, that's just a case of essentially what's happening here is we're not emotionally attached to the embryos, and so we don't consider uh, we don't consider the need to save them because we don't we don't you know we're not as emotionally attached to those mm-hmm. individuals. But it could be different. If emotions are involved, you could easily get something different. I'll give you two examples. What if the person in the IVF uh, lab they can save one person, or they can save a hundred embryos, and one of the embryos is their embryo. It's mm-hmm. their child, mm-hmm. and they may never have children again. They mm-hmm. may save the embryos in that case. And so where does the argument go from there? Mm-hmm. Uh, also, what if you have a case where you have one room has three pregnant women and another room has four women? Normally, you would say, oh, well, four women over three. But if it's three pregnant women, most people would say, or you could say three pregnant women and four men. Mm-hmm. Or well, I guess some people might say women and children first. So just uh, four women and three pregnant women. Most people say we'll save the four women. Ah, but wait a minute. Those three pregnant women, for many people, that's six people, not three. And so these these kinds of arguments can can cut the other way. Yeah, one kind of thing I was thinking about it. I mean, suppose we were in that building, and I could either get you out, or I could get my wife out. I mean, well, Trent, you're a great guy, but I'm sorry, she's coming out first. <laughs> That's right. We have we have different um, uh, attachments to people, different moral obligations, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that this is um, this would be. Uh, it's something we need to consider in our in our moral deliberations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what what do you what do you think also about the idea of that something that's been discussed lately of artificial wombs? How could this affect the pro life debate? It would be interesting uh, to if if pregnancy completely took place outside of a person's body, mm-hmm. and so. Now, one, I would be, from my own personal philosophical position, I do not believe, I believe children have a right not just to, li- to life, but mm-hmm. a right to grow and develop in their mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could only think of uh, the most extraordinary circumstance where if a mother's womb, uh, there was a medical problem and the child had to be evacuated, where it might be okay to continue the pregnancy through uh, 
such a device, but I would not say that they should be used for elective purposes just to avoid pregnancy. Children have a right to be naturally conceived and to develop in their mother's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a separate point. But I would add uh, to this, I would say that if it were the case that pregnancy just in the future was something that took place that people voluntarily went and started a pregnancy with an with a artificial womb, well, then suddenly you've lost a lot of arguments for the pro-choice. The, the bodily autonomy argument would be destroyed because it wouldn't depend on a person's body. Anymore. It wouldn't be my body, my choice. Uh, it would just be, hey, if you went and created this human life in this laboratory, you can't just go and kill this human life now. You have responsibilities, and it doesn't involve your body in any way, shape, or form. Though I think if they still did that, people would still treat the unborn as property they could, they could dispose of. Uh, so I don't. So when people who argue that abortion is entailed by the right to not be pregnant, those people don't have a leg to stand on anymore. But people who say abortion is entailed because the fetus is not a person, uh, their their position is would still be vindicated and and, and be fine. You know, that me think of another one. What about people who do say, "Well, you know, it is my body, and my body is being invaded by a foreigner, and I did not consent to be pregnant." Now, what I would say here is that uh, if you consented to have sexual relations, the case of rape is different, of course, but the vast majority of the time, you you have consented. You consented to a behavior that you know will cause another human being to come into existence. It'd be like possibly if I, at least. Uh, I, sorry, yes, that you know is that you know is ordered towards yeah. bringing another human being into existence. And so what I would say here is that, for example, if I said, if I got, if I drank alcohol and was impaired and got in my car and ran over someone, imagine if I said, well, no, 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 I never consented to run somebody over. Uh, I only consented to drink and drive. Most people would say, uh, yeah, you consented to do that and you consented to engage in an activity that is notorious uh, in the sense that it's ordered, you know, just notoriously likely to cause harm to other people. This argument, if that's the argument they're running with, then uh, then you could never impose the duty of child support onto a man. Because a mm-hmm. man could say, I never consented to be a father. I only consented to have sex. Mm-hmm. But the argument goes, he has to pay child support because he is responsible for the existence of this child. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then uh, then he, he owes... Um, uh, compensation. He owes an obligation to this child. And the same would be true for the, the child's mother as well. Where, you know, this is all well and good, but the sad reality is that your opinion really doesn't matter because you're a man. And as a man, you and I both, we have no authority to speak on abortion because, you know, we don't have uteruses. So why are we even bothering? What's funny, though, is today a lot of people will say men have uteruses, so <laughs> yeah. uh, I would push back there against their own standard. Mm. But I would also say that doesn't follow. That's like saying, well, I, uh, I don't – that's like telling someone, you don't have any children of your own, therefore you cannot say child abuse is wrong because laws related to child abuse – have no uh, bearing on you whatsoever. That's ridiculous. Even if an evil does not affect me, it doesn't follow that I can't stand up against that evil because we all have a duty to one another. Uh, it'd be like I could turn this argument around and say, as for a man, uh, you have a man who says abortion ought to be legal. I would say this issue doesn't affect you, and therefore uh, you should have no say in the matter. So uh, this argument can shut up pro-choice men just as much as it shuts up uh, uh, pro-life men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, 
we we are we only got about ten minutes or left here, and five minutes I was going to be wrapping things up. But where do we go from here exactly? And what are some tips you would give some pro lifers, especially in the way that our society is going, where it looks like you know we could take back the Supreme Court and all these other things. I mean, what what's what's the marching orders for a pro life camp? Uh, I think what we need to do is. Uh, the biggest thing is just have those conversations with people, even if they're difficult, to change people's hearts and minds. We have to change people's hearts and minds and live out the pro-life message. So mm-hmm. some of that's passive, pro-life bumper sticker, going to a march, volunteering at a pregnancy resource center. I mean, that's not passive, but it's more showing being visibly pro-life. But then the other thing is having those conversations with people, even if they might disagree with us, because that's the only way we're going to change people's minds on this issue. Mm-hmm. Well, we've talked a lot about the evils of abortion, and we all agree abortion is an evil, you and I do. But let's suppose there's someone listening out there, maybe it's a young woman who's had an abortion, or maybe an older woman who's remembering an abortion, or a man who willingly let a lady in his life abort one of his own children, and now they're hearing all this and thinking, oh my gosh, all these things make sense. I've really right. screwed up. I've really made a mistake, and that weight of condemnation is coming down on them. What would you say to such a person? Well, what I would say to that person is that there is no sin that God cannot forgive. God is all powerful, and He wants us to turn to Him and to seek His mercy. And by seeking forgiveness from God for the sin of abortion, we can be reconciled to Him, and we should not think it's some unforgivable kind of sin. And to know that God loves us and God has done mighty things through very broken people. Uh, I mean, he worked with uh, uh, Moses, killed somebody. Uh, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the buried him in the sand, even though he didn't have to, you know, it wasn't out of self-defense or anything like that. Uh, David was an adulterer and a murderer. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Uh, God has worked through many broken people, and we are all broken, and we have to seek forgiveness from him to find peace, and also it, it, it's healing. So I'd say that even if you find you seek forgiveness from God, there'll be a life of healing for you. So I'd recommend visiting ministries uh, uh, like Rachel's Vineyard is a wonderful ministry. People who are, are post-abortive, Silent No More is another, but I think Rachel's Vineyard is one I'd recommend for people who are, are post-abortive and are seeking healing. And what about the person out there who might be considering abortion, and it's kind of like sitting on the fence right now, but also saying, yeah, but you know, if I do go through this pregnancy, I I can't support a child. I'm not ready to raise a child. I don't have the maturity. I don't have the financial means, whatever it is. What would you say to such a person? What I would say to them is you're not going to be a mother or father. Let's say you're a mother. You're not going to be a mother in a few months. You are a mm-hmm. mother now. Yeah, You are a mother this is your child. You have a child. The point about whether I can have a child has passed. You have a child now. So what is the bare minimum we should do for our children? We should love them and care for them and fight for them. And you are someone who is strong enough to be able to do that. And there are lots of people in the pro-life community who want to help you. You can just go to uh, CareNet is a, as, as centers all around the country. Look up abortion alternatives on Google in your area, pre- pro-life center. There are, 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 is a venerable army of people who, who want to help you to care for this child, and they, they are ready, just you need to, to seek them out. Mm-hmm. And we in the church, we really need to be doing 
Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever it is, we really need to be doing a whole lot more, and we can do a whole lot more to help deal with this issue, can't we? Uh, absolutely. As churches, whether you're Catholic or Protestant, whatever it may be, we can work together. Uh, we all, we, the major Christian churches share a stance in protecting human life. We ought to work together, work alongside one another, and uh, be able to show that kind of solidarity to, to protect the unborn and, and really all human life. Mm-hmm. you have any predictions about what the future holds now for the pro-life movement and live everything going on right now i don't know i'm not good at prognosticating mm-hmm. i leave the future up to i let the future happen when it does but i'm very optimistic about young people that we are seeing who are passionate for defending the pro-life position and i would like to see them um continuing continuing on uh, and uh, we should encourage them mm-hmm. in that and more and more people are coming to the cause of life and we, sh- we should embrace them with open arms mm-hmm. and like we're doing on the show it really doesn't matter for time being where we side theologically or anything like that I mean you and i will hold hands with a secular atheist at this point Absolutely. Christian, Protestant, atheists. There are many atheists who mm-hmm. see that. Uh, and it's unfortunate that for these atheists, they think it's almost orthodoxy for atheism. Mm-hmm. They ought to be pro-choice when it's like, uh, no, you don't have to do that. Uh, you can be a free thinker. Mm-hmm. And I've known many people who are either pro-life atheists or they were atheists in pro-life and then they, they became Christian. Mm-hmm. We don't really have enough time for another question, so let's... Go ahead and start wrapping things up. Uh, do you have a blog, a website, an email, a way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? My website is trenthorn.com. If you'd like me to speak at your church or a conference, you can find me there at trenthorn.com. Uh, you can fill out an event form there. Uh, my podcast is called The Council of Trent, C-O-U-N-S-E-L, mm-hmm. and that is available on uh, iTunes, Google Play, and for premium subscription at trenthornpodcast.com. And do you have any works of your own on this topic you'd recommend? I do. Yes, I have a book called Persuasive Pro-Life. If you'd like to go deeper in this subject, it's one that would benefit any pro-life person. The book is called Persuasive Pro-Life. It's available at online uh, book retailers near you. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters podcast? Uh, I would just say keep doing your good work, and I would just ask our listeners to pray for, for both of us to continue defending the truths of Christianity and about the gospel of life uh, to whoever uh, we meet. But I'm grateful you brought me here. Yeah, and I just looked up the book on Amazon at the time of recording. The paperback is 1017. The Kindle version is 599. Now, Fanda, thanks for coming on, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Uh, happy, happy to hear it. Well, now I'd like to mind everyone better. Next week, we're going to have Josh Brown on the show talking about from the Equal Rights Institute. So I hope you'll be tuning in right for now. I'm Nick Peters. I, I'm signing off, and I affirm the virgin birth.